for 30 years plus, I have been trying to understand the relationship between the God-centeredness of God and his love for sinners like me. Now, that phrase, uh, God-centeredness of God, I know is not a, a common one. And yet, I have found it all over the Bible. And so it, it might be helpful just to pause here before I try to unpack the relationship between God's God-centeredness and his love for us. My goal this morning is to figure out what it means to be loved by God. That's my goal. And I don't think many people understand what it means to be loved by God. And so let me back up and explain the phrase, the God-centeredness of God. Another way to say it would be God's passion for his glory. Let's, let's take six Bible verses to put that in front of us. And I'll go from predestination to consummation, right? We'll go from predestination to creation to incarnation to sanctification. No, let's go to propitiation, then sanctification, and then consummation. So they're all Asians. So, predestination, Ephesians chapter, you won't need to look these up. I'll go too, I'll go too fast. Ephesians chapter one, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. So just boil it down. He predestined us to praise his grace. So why were you predestined to be like Jesus? Answer that you might praise him. So, in God's mind, you must think like this. I now, well, the word now is a temporal word and it happened before time. I hereby predestine them to praise me. Okay, so there you have God's passion for his own glory. Now let's go to creation. Isaiah 43, 6. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Those who are called by my name, who were created for my glory. So get inside God's mind. And at the moment of creation, he says, I hereby create you for me and my glory. Now let's go to incarnation. Romans 15, 8 and 9. For I say, Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. That simply means he was born a Jew, born under the law. Why? Why did he come? Why was he incarnate as a Jewish Messiah? Romans 15, 8. On behalf of the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Now, let's just boil it down. Here is God. I decree and now I send my son to be a lowly Jewish carpenter and then teacher, crucified Messiah, risen king. Why did I do all of that? 
so that the nations will glorify me for my mercy. So he's got this passion that people glorify him. Now let's go to propitiation, big theological word for the removal of the wrath of God against my sin. God undertook by the death of Jesus to substitute another so that his wrath would land on him, not me, and therefore his wrath is propitiated, taken away. Why did he do that? Romans 3.25, God put him forward. Christ forward publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had passed over sins previously committed. So at least one of the central things we must say about why Christ died to avert the wrath of God on me is that his righteousness in doing that might be magnified. So God in his mind says, my righteousness looks like it's been called into question because I've passed over so many sins without appropriate judgment. Therefore, I will now pour that judgment on my son and vindicate my righteousness. Let's go to sanctification. Philippians 1, 9. This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's sanctification, becoming holy. That you might be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, don't miss the fact that this is a prayer. This is not just a theological statement about what is in Paul's head about the glory of God. This is a prayer that God Almighty would make you holy under the praise of his glory. So sanctification, becoming like Jesus, is all designed to magnify God's glory. And if he does it in answer to prayer, it's his design. So God is passionate for his glory in sanctification. One more step, consummation. Why is he coming back? Why is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, going to come back? 2 Thessalonians 1.9 These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. He's referring to those who rejected the gospel. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified, in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. He says it twice there, twice. So he said, Jesus, why are you coming back? His answer, to be marveled at. Or to be glorified in my saints. I am coming back to be made much of. I am arriving, so you see me and make much of me. So now you've got predestination, creation, incarnation, propitiation, sanctification, and consummation for one purpose, mainly to make much of God. And they're all God's idea. Therefore, God has this passion for his glory, and I use the phrase, 
God's God-centeredness. Now, back to my question that's been troubling me for 30 years. How does God's God-centeredness relate to his love for me as a sinner? The reason this is an urgent question is because in America, at least, and I don't think it's just America, we don't think we are loved by someone who makes much of themselves. And we're not, because the Bible says in in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love seeks not its own. And so we know that when somebody walks into a room and starts talking about themselves continually, attracting attention to themselves, trying to angle to get you to make much of them, you are not loved at that moment. That's a problem, isn't it? It's a problem. Because we have a God who in everything he does makes much of himself. And in everything he does, he's trying to get you to make much of him. And we just don't feel like that's love. So it's been working on this for 30 years, trying to figure this out. Because I don't doubt that the scripture teaches that we are loved. And I don't doubt any of those six texts that I just gave you that God is God-centered and massively and primarily exalting his glory in all that he does. Okay. Here's the problem. It's in us. It's not in him. It's in us. The problem is, in America at least, and I think this is really Adamic, not just American, um, we feel loved when we're made much of. If you, if you start saying nice things about me and complimenting me, and I say, whoa, thank you, thank you. I feel so good now. I feel good. I feel really good when you say nice things about me. And so pervasive in American culture is to be loved is to be made much of. I could use language on it that would offend a lot of you because you're into it. So I will. (laughs) The gospel of self-esteem is the American gospel. There's a Christianized version and there's a secular version. And it solves all of our problems. It solves kids on the street. It solves academic dysfunction. It solves family problems. It is the standard gospel in all sessions where you're trying to fix people. Help them to like themselves. Because if they'll like themselves, then they'll be more functional in society and in family and in school. And so make much of them. And, and, and it works. Because we feel so good when we're made much of. And if we could just stand in front of the mirror and like what we see, problems will go away. And that is a very powerful gospel in our day. And it is a false gospel. And it is a destructive gospel precisely because it works so Well, now, that makes it impossible for us to understand the love of God in America. If to be loved is to be made much of, then when a being arrives on the scene 
whose whole passion is to make much of himself, you cannot perceive that as love. You cannot emotionally compute that as love. That's our fundamental problem. Because the love of God for you is not primarily to make much of you. It is at great cost to himself to enable you to enjoy making much of him forever. So here's my test question. Let me see if there's people sitting around the corner there that I'm not seeing. All right. I think I can just see. Um, here's my test question. Do you feel more loved when God makes much of you or when he, almighty in power and mercy, enables you to enjoy making much of him forever? That is a deadly question. It's a frightening question to ask in congregations across America where we have been schooled. We have absorbed from the air we breathe that the essence of love is that you make much of me, you love me. God make much of me, he loves me. That's the definition of love. You find a God who is given to making much of himself in all that he does. This does not feel loving. And now I'm telling you it's the very essence of his love. And I'm going to go to the Bible and try to show you it is. So let me say what I'm saying again. To be loved by God is not to be made much of by God, but to be freed from the bondage to the mirror to enjoy making much of God forever. And I use the word enjoy real carefully and pointedly. I'll say it again like this. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to increase his self-esteem. But they go. Nobody goes to the Alps to feel big. But they go. Why do they go? Why do they go? Stand before these massive mountains or this incredible, deep, scary canyon. And people go. They get close to the edge. Or they take trails up in those mountains. Why? Here's my answer. It's because self-esteem is not what our hearts long for at the bottom. Our hearts are prepared by God in his image for something massive. Something outside ourselves, something expansive, and huge and glorious and magnificent that causes us to experience in this life now and then the precious miracle for a moment of self-forgetfulness in joy in a thing outside ourselves. You've all tasted it, even if only for a split second you've known the thrill of self-forgetfulness in another reality that is absolutely magnificent. And at those moments, 
we've experienced what we're made for. (laughs) You were not made to be saved in front of a mirror that you like. That is the smallest view of salvation that could be imagined. Clean the mirror. Make me like what I see. Oh, good. I am now so happy. That is so small. That is so small. That is not healing. They have healed my people lightly. What you're supposed to do for people, if you love them, is tilt the mirror. Like that. So the one for whom they were made would hit them. And they would forget about this. I remember the story of Paul Brand's, I mentioned the story of Paul Brand last night, his mother, a missionary in the mountains, till she was 90, he left and went back to England, became a surgeon, went to visit his mom after being away from her for, I think, 10 or 15 years, I forget how long. She was very old. She eventually died in the mountains of India, and she was loved by the people, and she was buried there. And he went back to see her one more time. Hadn't seen her for probably 15 or 20 years. And he said, let's see, I'll get my timing right here. I think she probably had about 10 years to live. But anyway, she's very old, maybe 80. And uh, he looked at her, and he got big tears in his eyes. He says, Mom, I've never seen so many wrinkles in a face. And then they hugged, had a great time while he was there, and he left. And his mother took down all the mirrors in her house and never had a mirror for the next ten years. And I thought, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Because now she just says, hmm, I don't think I'll look at that anymore. I just look at all these people that I love. I'll just... Pour my life out for the people. Well, think about this. And that's a, that's a freedom. That's a magnificent freedom. The mirror of our lives is to be tilted first Godward and be so satisfied in Him that we can walk away from self-preoccupation and give our lives away to people. Now, we need, to, we need to put some Bible under this point. That to be loved by God is not to be made much of, but to be enabled to enjoy making much of Him forever. That's my main point. In fact, I'll put it like this. We've got a mission statement at our church. It's, it goes like this. And it's my life mission statement. It's one of the great things about being at a church 22 years. Your life mission statement and the church mission statement become one. And so I'm here because they believe in this mission statement. We exist to spread a passion for God's supremacy in all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. When I preached eight sermons on that, somebody came up to me one time and said, well, that's really good as far as it goes, but where's love for people in our mission statement? Should we say something about love in our mission statement? And I looked at him and I said, that's the definition of love. 
We've defined ourselves as a loving church. My definition of loving people is spread to them a passion for God's supremacy in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. That's what I mean when I love. If you, if you want to be loved by me, all you're going to get is my willingness to lay down my life that you come to have a passion for the supremacy of God. That's all I'm going to give you. It's my life that you will have that. If you don't want that, you don't want love. Because I only will give you what you need and what's good for you. Not what you want. You need God. And you need a passion for God. And you need to live for the joy of peoples. And it all needs to be through Jesus. That's the meaning of loving people. People who try to give people a cup of cold water, feed them, heal them, and never lead them to a passion for God are preparing them to be destroyed. Feeling good all the way. It's not love. Okay. If you have a Bible, let's go to John 11. That was introduction. See, Mark told me I could preach as long as I wanted. And my plane leaves at 4.10. John 11. And then we're going to look a little bit at John 17. I, I re, we really are more than half done. Um, John 11. Now, what I'm looking for in the Bible now, and I'm going, I know I'm going backwards. You should read text and do exposition then draw conclusions. But I've been doing this for 30 years, so I went backwards this morning and drew my conclusion. And I'm going to back up and look for foundation in the Bible and it really, in my experience, went the other way. I'm looking for foundation for this truth. Being loved by God is not his making much of you. It's freeing you and enabling you at great cost to himself to enjoy making much of him forever. That's my point. And now we need to find out if it is so. Chapter 11. Now a certain man, we're at the beginning of the chapter, was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now stop right there. I just want to point out some things as we go. Why does he, he point that out about Mary there? It was the Mary who anointed his feet. That hasn't even happened yet in the Gospel of John. Happens in chapter 12. Isn't that amazing? The reason is because he's, he's going to underline three times in this text, he loves this family. This is a love affair going on here. And this woman was so uh, affectionate toward him that she uh, anointed the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. It's pointed out here because that moment must have been explosively deep and moving and emotionally charged and... He loves this family, these two sisters and their brother. He'll say that explicitly in just a moment. Verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love. There it is. That's the second thing. Him who you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness is not unto death, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God, may be glorified through it. So now we have two things in this text that I'm really 
eager to see together. Love for a family and the glory of God. And I want to know, how do they relate to each other? That's why this text drew me in. Notice, he says, this sickness, I love Lazarus. I love Lazarus. And he's sick. This sickness is all about my father's glory and my glory. Now, verse 5. Now, Jesus loved. So lest we miss the point a third time. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, the connection between verse 5 and verse 6 is cataclysmically important, and the NIV totally distorts it. So sorry about that, because I'm told that most of you will have the NIV, and uh, you will not be able to see the point if you have the NIV, because the NIV begins with the word yet. These translators could not bring themselves to say what John wrote, because it is so shocking. But... He wrote, therefore, not yet, therefore. And I was told that that was preached on in this church a few back on Labor Day, and that was also pointed out. So I don't feel like I'm doing anything out of line here. Now, let's read it the way it stands. It's an oon in Greek, in case you've got any Greek folks in the crowd. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer where he was. You see why they didn't like the translation, right? That's not a nice thing to do. (laughs) This doesn't look like love. And the whole text is about love. So the translators couldn't bring themselves to say what is being said here, which is absolutely crucial to see. A worldview hangs on this word, therefore. therefore. He loves him. He's on the brink of death. In fact, he's probably already dead. This sickness is all about glory. God's glory. I love you. I want God to get glory. That's what I'm after. I want to know how these relate. And he says, he's sick on the brink of death. All right. I'm going to stay here two more days. I love him. I'm going to stay here two more days. I love him, therefore I'm staying. I love him, therefore I'm staying. What does that mean? It means the most loving thing he could do is show his glory. Now, it's the end of my sermon. I could go home right here. Although, knowing the way human minds work, you might say, that's a pretty fragile foundation in the Bible. You've got to give us a little more than that, because you might be, I mean, maybe the NIV had some. All right, let's go to chapter 17. Stay in the same gospel, same Christ. Many of you know this prayer in John 17 is called the the high priestly prayer. It's Jesus' last long, great prayer for You, saints, if you're a Christian this morning, this is one of the most wonderful thoughts in the world. Because verse 20 says he's praying for you. I love the thought 
of this prayer being prayed for 20th century, 21st century Christians. Because look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe on me through their word. That's me. I believed on Jesus through the word of the apostles. He's praying for me 2,000 years before I lived. So wear this text as a personal intercession on your behalf, prayed by Jesus 2,000 years ago. No doubt, since the Bible says he's interceding for us today, he's praying these kinds of prayers still today. Own this prayer now for yourself because you are loved when you're prayed for by Jesus. I hope I, I don't have to argue for that. I'm going to just state that as an assumption. If Jesus prays for you, he's loving you in praying for you. But that's a big assumption. And what I have to say in this text hangs on it. So if you reject it, you probably won't buy my point from this text. But I'm assuming when Jesus prays this prayer for his disciples and then through them, those who would believe on him, he's loving them. In the prayer, this is a loving thing to do, to pray for us this way. All right, now let's read what love looks like in verses 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, now what is he going to ask? What's he going to pray in his prayer of love? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh. Let's stop there. You've got to feel how offensive this is. You don't pray this way, and you shouldn't. So I love, my, I love my disciples. I'm about to go die for them. So, Father, here's the first thing I want you to do. Glorify me. Make me look really good. Magnify me. Make me famous. What a prayer. What a prayer of love. Oh, I hope you get this this morning. I hope God just turns you upside down if you're not already upside down. So that you feel love when he prays that. So that you can compute emotionally. He's loving me when he prays like that. That's a loving thing for him to pray. Father, get me glory. Verse 2, he stopped in the middle. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those whom you have given. And somebody says, ah, there it is, there it is. Now we're talking love. Eternal life. Yes, John 3.16. I know that's love. All right. We got something I can be familiar with here. Eternal life. That's what he's praying for and that's what I want and therefore it's loving. Read the next verse. (laughs) This is eternal life, that they know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Yes, you're not wrong to say what you just said. 
Eternal life. He's given it to me. That is what it means to love. That's not a false statement. That's true. But you need to get inside what life is. Life is knowing me, Jesus says, and my Father. You want life? Here I am. Eternal life is radically God-centered, Christ-centered. Even this precious word that we have made something we can feel loved by. Give me eternal life, I feel loved. But I'm asking you to compute emotionally that when you find out that life is just knowing him, delighting in him, fellowshipping with him, you feel just as loved. In fact, if you don't feel loved by that, you don't feel loved by eternal life. Because life is knowing God. Life is knowing Christ. There are so many people, I don't know if there are any in the room, but perk your ears up to see if you're one of them, professing Christians and non-Christians who are afraid of hell, rightly so, and who long for escape and heaven. And frankly, it just doesn't matter to them whether Jesus is going to be there or not. If they're healthy, if they're well-fed, well-clothed, have some good entertainments, uh, reunion with loved ones, a new heaven and a new earth where bears and, and uh, little boys and girls can play together, uh, that, that would be fine. Jesus, he can take a vacation. He can just evaporate. I, if that's the way you feel about heaven, you're not saved. You're not a Christian. You don't know what it is to be loved. You think being loved is endless vacation. And Christ is on the other side of the universe somewhere. If he exists at all, it doesn't really matter. Because he's not what makes me happy. Health makes me happy. Money makes me happy. Just extended into eternity. Heaven, call it heaven. Golf makes me happy. Endless golf courses. I was preaching at Gaylord, Michigan on Tuesday. And... And they have 21 golf courses within 30 minutes of that church. It's one of the most golfy places in the world. <laughs> and I'm sure there would be a lot of people there who in their uh, extrapolation of, of creation into heaven, it would just be an endless golf course. And there are many people that substitute earthly things. And Jesus, he's just not central. So I'm pointing you to verse 3 here. And saying that when he defines eternal life as knowing the Father and knowing the Son, he doesn't mean knowing about. He means a, a personal, deep, sweet fellowship and relationship that is a soul-satisfying wonder. Verse 4, he's back to glory. I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the first five verses of this loving prayer for me is all about praying for his own glory. And my goal this morning in this message is to help you see things like that in the Bible and feel loved by them. Why would that be a loving thing to pray at the beginning of this prayer? It would be loving if this is true. 
If you were designed to find your deepest, fullest, longest satisfaction in making much of God. If that's what you were designed for, this is love. If you weren't, this is not love. This is a megalomania on a trip trying to get the applause of people that he cares nothing about. But if love is being made to know him, to enjoy him, to be satisfied by him, to delight in him, to be thrilled by him, to treasure him and revel in his presence, then this is a prayer that that would be preserved for you. It's like Jesus saying, now, Father, I know that you made them to know me and love me and enjoy me. I am the most infinite and glorious being. There's no point in Jesus trying to be self-effacing here. If Jesus were self-effacing, we would be destroyed. Because he is our treasure. If the treasure says, I'm no treasure, he's a liar. And if he's a liar, he's not a treasure. In order for us to have the treasure that we were made for, the treasure has to preserve his infinite value. And he's saying, Father, I'm here on earth. Great risks are being taken. And now I'm laying myself out for them. Make me successful in my redemptive work. Bring me from the tomb. Install me in my kingly role. Give me all the glory so that they will have an all-satisfying treasure in me. That's what love is. One more text. End of the chapter. Verse 24, to show you that I'm not making this up. Father, here's love. Here is the pinnacle of love. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Now you have it. The argument is Almost complete. He's closing the prayer. He began the prayer saying, Father, glorify me. Preserve my glory. Exalt my glory. Make me look magnificent. Bring me through this horrible cross and shame. And install me as King of kings and Lord of lords. Give me a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. And then, Father, after you have restored my glory and exalted me and made me infinitely satisfying, let them see me. Let them see me. Forever. And I'll stick in a little speculative comment here. It's more philosophically derived than biblically derived, but I believe true. Since I'm finite, and my eyes are finite, and my capacities of joy are finite, and my understanding is finite, I will never be able to take all of God in at once because he's infinite. So if he's going to display all of himself for my enjoyment, tell me now, how long is it going to take? Yes. Forever. Which means my nine-year-old fear of heaven, not 
that I wouldn't get there, but that I'd get there and be bored is not true for this reason. You see, my conception of heaven at about nine, I'd lie down on my, we had a spiral stairs that go up to the top of our house, and I would lie on the roof. I would lie down on the roof at night as a little boy and just look. I was just terrified. And I wasn't terrified mainly because I didn't believe in Jesus. I did. I was terrified that it's just going to go on and on and on. And it's going to be so boring. Because my church wasn't all that exciting in those nine. And, and I thought, I had this conception that we're going to know everything right away. You'll know even as you're known, so there's nothing to learn. So it's static and... And now, my conception of God has grown a bit. And I have a a little bit of breathtaking sense for what it means to be infinite. God is infinite, which means I cannot contain at any time all of it. 